If you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll be looking at the end of that chapter. And I thought and prayed a lot about maybe how do I give an introduction that'll draw people into the text. But instead of trying to come up with some kind of catchy introduction, I believe the Lord has led me to ask a very straightforward question from the last verse of today's sermon passage. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 16, but before we read it, just let your eyes fall on verse 16. Here's the question. Would you like it if God walked into the room right now and guaranteed you you would have His salvation forever? That's what verse 16 is about in the New American Standard, which I have in front of me. The verse reads, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Some of you have an ESV or a CSB in your lap, and that translation says at the end, for by doing, pardon me, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The King James says, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Well, maybe you can tell my voice I'm not feeling the best today. But I've asked for God's strength for a few moments to carry me, to help me, to help us as I try to explain from this text how you can absolutely be one of those people. You can absolutely be a person to whom the God of the universe right now guarantees eternal salvation. Pray with me. Father, for Jesus' sake, we mean for Jesus' glory. And to display His greatness for time and for eternity, Would you, by the same Holy Spirit that wrote this sentence, make the promise of verse 16 ours? We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that we've read the conclusion, I would like to back up and just read the verses that precede it with you before we try to unpack them. Verse 11, New American Standard reads, and hear God's voice speak to you now, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. 
That's a magnificent promise at the end. This passage, verse 11 to 16, has two parts, verse 11 and 12, verses 13 to 16. They both begin with the same instruction. 11 and 13 is the pastor's work. Paul's writing this passage to Timothy, hence the title of the book, 1 Timothy. And Paul's telling him in verse 11 and verse 13 what his job description is. But if you take a look at the passage, verse 11 and 12 gives the work of the pastor and the witness of the pastor, how he is to live. Verses 13 to 16 give the work, the job description, and the reward, why he is to do this work and live this way. So although both sections begin with the same focus, the pastor's job description, the work he's to do, the opening commands of each section are followed by a different focus. Timothy, do this work in this way, part one. Do this work for this reason, part two. Verse 11 and 12, the accent lands on time, this earthly life. Do this work as long as God gives you breath. The second section lands on eternity. Do this work because hell is hot. And heaven is real, and there's only one Savior. In the first section, Paul tells Timothy what he's to do and the manner in which he is to do it. In the second section, Paul tells Timothy what he is to do and the reason for which he is to do it. The two main headings that we'll work under, verse 11 to 12 and verse 13 to 16, are this. The pastor's work and witness, the pastor's work and reward. First, his work and his witness, that's verse 11 and 12. Look at it again. Prescribe and teach these things, that's the work. Let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example for those who believe, that's his witness. First, his work. I want you to notice this is a command. Prescribe and teach these things. I'm going to say this many more times, trying to unpack this passage as faithfully as I can. This verse is a command. This passage is littered with commands. Well, we have to get our arms around the little phrase, these things, to know what Timothy is to do. What is the these things that he is to prescribe and teach? What things did Paul have in mind? Well, if you just back up to verse 6, the same phrase is there in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What things? Things that nourish your souls on the words of the faith, verse 6. Things that accord with sound doctrine, verse 6. That's the things that Paul has in mind that Timothy is being commanded to command. The word prescribed could be command. I command you to command these things. But since verse 6 also, uh, it indicates what Paul was hearkening back to prior to that in pointing out these things, verse 6, he clearly is hearkening back. Well, what was right before that? Verses 1 to 4, in pointing out that some people are going to fall away from the faith. Some people are going to quit on Jesus. Some people are going to stop believing the gospel. 
The alarming statistics of what's happening in the evangelical West, when people get 18 years old, they in droves are leaving the church because they never believed the real gospel that they might have professed to believe in the first place. A lot of people are going to leave the faith. Hymenaeus, Alexander, they left. Chapter 1. They quit on Jesus. Point this stuff out. I'm commanding you to tell people that they need to count the cost. Verse 1, that people are going to fall away from the faith. In verses 1 to 3, they're going to fall away because they believe deceptive, demonic lies about God. They listen to deceptive spirits. They listen to demonic doctrine. They sear their conscience when people lie to them about God. So prescribe and teach these things. Timothy was to exhort the church to live a God-saturated life, verse 5. Everything you do, dominated by the Word of God, verse 5. Dominated by prayer. These things, Timothy, I'm commanding you to command the people. That's his job description. Prescribe and teach these things. So verse 6 tells us the these things that came before, and it alludes to the these things that come after. What comes after verse 6? Have nothing, nothing to do with worldly fables that are fit only for old women. Verse 7. That's an idiom like old wives' tales. It's not that women are any more susceptible to lies than men. It's native to the human condition, fallen human condition, to be susceptible to Satan's deception. Like wives' tales or spiritual cliches. Like we live in a land that's just full of wives' tales. We repeat them all the time. It's okay to be entertained by them. It's not okay to build your life on them. Like if an expecting mother's carrying high or low, it's a boy or a girl. It would be girl, boy. Or if the heartbeat is more than a certain number per minute, then it's a boy or a girl. Well, that's wives' tales. Maybe you're right. You can be entertained by that. But if you go buy a bunch of arsenal to put into a little girl's room because of a heartbeat or the way the mom's carrying, and it turns out to be a boy, that's not just entertainment. That's foolish. Right? Don't build your life on cliches and idioms. But there's some that are really dangerous. God helps those who help themselves. Bank your life on that and perish forever. That's not true. That's anti-gospel. Clichés are no way to live. Timothy, I'm commanding you to command these things. Don't build your life on little spiritual clichés, veneer. When all else fails, read the instructions. What? Seriously? Like as the last resort, crack your Bible open? No. No, not surfacey, mile-wide, inch-deep Christianity. Not Christianity-like. Go as deep as you can into the mind and heart of God. I'm commanding you to command these things. That's his job. Instead of being cliche and clever, Paul's commanding Timothy to be God-besotted in his ministry. For this purpose, Paul wrote, we are to labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Verse 10, 
who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. That means he's gonna save everybody, but really, really save the people who believe the gospel? No, Paul's not talking about universalism in verse 10. When he says, command and teach these things, it's the verse right before it where it says, fix your hope on the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. What Paul's saying is that receiving salvation, especially of believers, he's the only savior there is. There's not two or 10 saviors out there there are not 10,000 saviors out there. He's the savior of all men, and believers are gonna know that. The right response to the savior is required by God. You, you must, you must turn from your sin. You must put your faith in the risen Jesus. You must do that. God doesn't suggest it. He commands you to believe. He demands you to repent. And if you do that, and every time a pastor like Timothy stands up in front of you with the Bible open and tells you, yep, there it is again, it's in the Bible again, and you say, yes, yes, that's the gospel I believe. Tell me again. Then God guarantees you in verse 16, you'll be saved. Paul knows a lot of people are going to play games with God and use the Bible unbiblically. Literally, literally said in chapter 1, there's people who use the law unlawfully. They major on the minors. They constantly get people's attention off of Jesus by using the Bible. Paul tells Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Teach, like our pastor just sat down here, stood down here a few minutes ago, and he literally taught three steps on trying to unpack the law about the consequences of sin. He's teaching, literally obeying the sermon passage down there on the floor just a few minutes ago. Keep commanding. Present, active, imperative. Keep on commanding. Keep on prescribing. Keep on teaching these things. If you don't like to be told what to do, I definitely don't recommend Christianity to you. Christianity is fundamentally turning away from you and embracing another Lord. If anyone confesses Jesus Christ is Lord, he will be saved. That means you're saying, my answer is yes, now tell me what to do. He's the Lord. You bow the knee to a new sovereign. I command you to command these things. Keep telling God's people what God requires. That's his job description. But while I don't recommend Christianity to anybody that doesn't like to be told what to do, if you want the satisfied life, if you want the happy life, I enthusiastically recommend loving Jesus and keeping his commands. Jesus even taught that the evidence of our love for him will be our keeping of his commands in John 14. And John, Jesus' beloved disciple, who was probably a teenager or close to that when he was walking with Jesus during his earthly ministry, lived to be an old man. And in his later years, John said, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and, and, and. One more thing, don't forget this. His commandments are not burdensome. 
Do you want to lighten your load? Obey Jesus. Do you want to weigh your life down? Disobey Jesus. What Christians need over and over and over again, present active imperative, is the steady, faithful diet of God's Christ-centered, gospel-clear scriptures proclaimed to us again and again and again. This is the tonic that God knows will preserve us to the end, will keep us believing. This is the antidote from verse 1, falling away. When God's people hear the gospel proclaimed from the Bible week after week after week from faithful pastors, all of the Christians in the church continually say, yep, that's my Jesus. That's the gospel I believe. Tell it to me again. Constant nourishment on the faith, verse 6. Nourishment. Your body just devouring the calories of the gospel. Nourishing your soul on Jesus. That's what we need. That's the pastor's job. But the second sub-point under number one, remember verse 11 and 12, his job and his witness, his job and his reward, 13 to 16. Job, I've told you, what's his witness? Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. All right, if you're between ages four and 18, this part is for you, right? Not only you, I'm telling you right now, you can make a massive impact for Jesus in this church. Listen carefully. As I've already said, you're going to hear me say this a bunch. This verse is bracketed by commands. Verse 12, here's the two commands. I don't know how your Bible renders it, but these are not suggestions. They are imperatives. They are commands. Let no one look down on you for your youthfulness. That's a command. Show yourself an example of those who believe. That's a command. But it's not a boastful look at me. It's not narcissistic self-focus. You're not constantly taking selfies and publishing them to the church about how awesome you are. Paul's command to Timothy is a call to be Christ-like. Here's what I mean. Many would suggest that humility sounds like this. Don't look at me. Now, don't, don't follow me. Now, I'm just a terrible example. No, 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 no. No, I, I'm not really... A lot of people suggest that's humility. You want to know what that is? Well, you, you may be right, so it could be humility. You may be a poor example of the Christian life. It would be humble to acknowledge that. But it's not humility to be deferential all the time. It's not humility to always take the focus from self insofar as the look at you helps somebody to look at Jesus. This is basic Christianity 101. Part of the reason you and I need a church is because Christianity is not only taught, it is also caught. You need flesh and blood examples of people pursuing Jesus so that you can get some flesh and bones, some teeth on what it would look like for you to become more like Jesus. 
you also should be helping other people do that. You want to lay an axe at the root of your pride? Do you want to know how to live more dependent on the Holy Spirit? Would you like a more desperate and delighted experience in your prayer closet and in your daily Bible study? Consider telling everyone around you that one of the best ways they can become more like Jesus is by more closely watching and imitating your life. That'll drive you to prayer. That'll drive you to desperate Bible study. That'll make you stop making excuses for your pet sins. That's precisely what Paul told the churches of Corinth, Philippi, and Thessalonica. Quote, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. If they can't say, follow me as I follow Jesus, they're his enemy. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. The author of Hebrews, I think, is referring to pastors who died when he said, remember those who led you. Past tense, their journey is over. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Live like those godly people who used to be in your church. False humility says, oh, don't look at me. Don't imitate me. There's obviously a negative way to say, look at me. That's so abundantly obvious, I don't have to spend any time in this sermon on that. Why would this be so important for the church? Why would it be so essential that two times in one verse, Paul would command Timothy to be an example to the church in five specific ways? Because Paul knew something that later, from reading Paul, Robert Murray McShane picked up on, who died when he was 28 years old, and McShane, when asked what his church need more than anything else, I've told you recently, McShane's response to that question, what do your people need? McShane's response, you know it, the holiness of their pastor. Why would McShane say that? Because he knew that although he was in his mid-twenties, pastoring mostly people physically older than him, he knew that if he didn't live consistently with his preaching, that everybody in the church was going to be tempted to excuse their lack of godliness also. Oh, this is just stuff we talk about on Sunday. This is our just religious exercise. We're tipping our hat to God. We have to do this little mantra, but we live another way. It doesn't have any real impact on how we live. Like, let's just time out for a second. Parentheses. What's going to be different about our life tomorrow as a result of our being in this room right now? It doesn't have any impact. This is spiritual mumbo-jumbo. Unless nobody can assume the pastor doesn't disbelieve the stuff that he keeps saying to us. 
Or if he does live a disconnected life from the message he preaches, obviously, McShane knew people are just going to assume, he just gets paid to say what he says. He doesn't even believe what he says. And we all feel a little more comfortable about our godless life because we all live the same way too. But if somebody's life in here increasingly is brought into accord with this glorious gospel message, if somebody among us just starts looking more and more like the Jesus we see in the Bible, more deeply loving Him, more aggressive in fighting sin, Romans 8, 13, more aggressive in their pursuit of holiness, Hebrews 12, if somebody's more captured with the baseline message of Christianity, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst one I know, and He came into the world to save His people from their sins, not to leave them in their sins. Then people have to take notice. Something called conviction starts happening at an even deeper level in all of our lives. Robert Yarbrough concluded from the timeline of the book of Acts that Timothy was probably not yet 30 years old. That's why I said if you're 4 to 18, let's say 4 to 28, think about the impact you could have on this church. Paul's obviously writing to the pastor. This applies to us all. Maybe the church thought Timothy just needed to be a little more seasoned, a little more life under his feet, a little more suffering. Maybe he wouldn't be so serious about all that holiness stuff, all that Bible stuff. Maybe they thought he was full of just youthful zeal and he'd calm down a little bit when he got a little bit older. Maybe they were a prideful church. We know, Revelation 1, Jesus told this church, I have something against you. You lost your first love. That's what Jesus said to the church that Timothy's the pastor of. Maybe they were already well on their way to that. And maybe their spiritual declension started because they started disregarding Timothy's preaching. And so Paul said, if they're going to run from Jesus, if they're going to lose their first love, and we do know that they did, I'm telling you, no matter what anybody else does, no matter which way they go, if you're 12 years old or 22 years old, you set an example for all the believers, presumably older believers, in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. No excuses. Verse 12, this is his manner, this is his witness, this is the way he lives. His job, prescribe and teach these things. His witness, speech, life, love, faith, and purity. Speech. Paul wanted Timothy's content in the pulpit and among the people to be consistent, to be biblical, to be Christ-centered. You're in no sense biblical if you are not Christ-centered. We talked a couple weeks ago about how the devil uses the Bible. He quoted it at Jesus. Demons believe and they tremble. Quoting Bible verses is not necessarily being biblically faithful. Christ-centered in your speech. Paul had just dealt with the demonic distractions that false teachers like to focus on in the preceding verses. 
I said a moment ago, this is what they're doing. They're constantly majoring on the minors. They're fascinated with everything but Jesus. Timothy was being exhorted by Paul to have speech that exalted the subject of the Bible, Jesus. Paul knew Jesus had taught for out of for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And if enjoying Christ was Timothy's life, not just his job, then the people wouldn't be able to ignore the boasting in Jesus that they heard from Timothy. So set an example in the way you talk. Set an example in the way you live, your conduct. The first two are outward, the last three are inward, but conduct. Just a brief word on that. At the end of the day, our way of living reveals our true beliefs. We can say we believe something. But we have to live in accord with that to prove that we believe that. Paul wanted Timothy's life among the church to reveal that Christ was indeed his life. His conduct accorded with the lordship of Jesus and the gospel message he preached. Paul was exhorting Timothy to be what he had told the entire church in Corinth to be. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live, those who belong to Jesus, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. All of life, all for Christ, conduct. The last three I said are inward, love, faith, and purity. Love, Paul knew the age-old principle and power of love that has come to be expressed so many times in the familiar phrase. This is not a verse of the Bible. This is not just cliche. This is a pretty good maxim. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Love them, Timothy. Set an example by being an extension of Christ's love for them through you. Love them with Christ's love. It's the word agape. Love them. Those people should never have any reason to think that they are a stepping stone for you to get something else from them. Love them. Love them. Lay your life down for them. Use your strongest years, young man, in service to them. The goal of our instruction, chapter 1, verse 5, is love from a pure heart. That's the point. If you are not increasing, are y'all listening to me? If you are not increasing in your love for the people in this room or the church to which you belong, there's a big disconnect between you and the Jesus you say you follow. Do you love these people? Do you love these people? Do you love these people? Paul commands Timothy to set an example in that. Faith, so interconnected with love all over scriptures. Galatians 5, faith working through love. It's so connected to love. But faith, biblical faith, does not try to display, like showcase how great and godly we are. Biblical faith seeks to showcase how great Jesus is. That kind of faith. 
and impurity. What Paul's telling Timothy is that his life is to be a sermon in the sense that he walks in the holiness of Jesus that accords with the holy Jesus that he talks about. Set an example. This is your job. This is your manner of life. So the first part's about the pastor's work and witness, and then the last part's about his work and his reward. Verses 13 to 16, the pastor's work is just a repeat. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Sounds a lot like verse 11. But these are commands. Give attention, verse 13. Do not neglect, verse 14. Another command, verse 15, take pains. Another command, verse 15, be absorbed. Verse 16, pay close attention. Verse 16, persevere in these things. Six commands in those four verses. Verse 13, the focus is on the content that is to dominate and dictate the gathered assembly of the church. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. I'm literally obeying this verse as I speak. Read the Bible to the people. These are baseline standard, never neglect them, always include them, essential elements of a church's worship gathering. Read the Scripture, proclaim the Scripture, teach the Scripture. These are essential. We need the Bible. We need God's mind pressed down into us. Or as Luther said, we need the gospel beat into our head regularly. We forget the gospel. We need somebody to remind us through the Word of God about the Son of God who's loved us from eternity with the heart of God. I don't think churches should purposefully try to do anything poorly. Okay, We might often be accused of that around here at Grace Church. I don't think churches should purposely try to do anything poorly. And we should especially strive to do those things consistently and well if we're going to do them. God help us. Anything that would draw people's attention to Christ. But to be clear, I don't think churches should try to make their music unappealing or any of their ministries shoddy and shabby. And while I think churches are abundantly wise to try to figure out how to do things that we've tried to do, age-appropriate biblical training in clusters, in classes, and while someone's regular engagement in a church's small group ministry, almost always, every church I've ever known, not just Grace Church, if you are consistently engaged in a Bible class or a small group ministry, almost always, not always, almost always, it's a very good thermometer for that person's personal spiritual health. But none of those things are most essential for a church's gathering to be obedient to God's Word. All those things may be useful, but what is essential is the reading, preaching, and teaching of the Bible. If you get together with a church and never sing a song like our brothers and sisters in underground churches in China who can't sing aloud because they would be found out and severely persecuted, if not worse, and they have to listen so attentively to the pastor teaching the Bible because he has to use his inside voice to tell them about Jesus. And everybody has to pay attention. 
because nobody needs to know we're in here right now. And if that's all you ever get, and it's faithful to the Bible, it's all you need. Read the Bible. Preach the Bible. Teach the Bible. If that's all you get, and your church has no other bells or whistles, you will grow in your faith. God will be honored. Jesus will be formed in you. You will become more like Christ. You don't need rah-rah cheerleading to follow Jesus, or if that's the only thing that motivates you to follow Jesus, you got some real big question marks. Do the lights have to be just right? Music have to sound just right? Tempo have to be just right for you to be able to really worship? That's a problem. What if just a broken-hearted, ordinary person who's prayed up and studied up stands up and tells you what the verses say? That's enough. That's what we must have. And we should try to do the other things as well as we can. Verse 14 says, don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. It was issued by prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the elders. Spiritual gift is something Timothy received. Like God had gifted this young man in some way to be a pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he shouldn't neglect that. He shouldn't disregard that. He should step into it, own that. Yes, Lord, I'll, so help me God, I'll give it my all. Because Ephesians 4 says, when Jesus got up from the dead, not only did he prove he would save all of his people, but then he sat on heaven's throne and started just dispensing gifts to his churches. And Ephesians chapter 4 says, part of the gifts that he's just pouring out on every true church are pastor teachers. Because he knows we need people to help us keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what the church is all about. So don't neglect that spiritual gift the laying on of hands by the elders, the prophecy they made over you, that's a consistent biblical theme. 2 Timothy 1.6, 1 Timothy 1.18. You're finding in Acts 8.17 and Acts 9.17 and Acts 19.6, churches laying hands on people. Acts 13, laying hands on people, sending them out. What they're saying is, you're not the only one that thinks you're called by God. We think it too. And as a symbol, as an extension of God on your life that we see, we're going to bless you. We're going to lay hands on you as if God himself is grabbing you, saying you are set apart for him. Serve him with all your might. We will follow. We will listen. We will walk with you. We will pray for you. That's what the laying hands means. Paul says, Timothy, don't neglect that. Here's the principle. Listen to the counsel of other godly people. A lot of people laid their hands on you, Timothy. They were godly people. Pursue what they said. Remember what they told you. We need to remember we're not self-appointed. God called me and I said so. But others see in pastor teachers qualities that God has given at his own discretion that stupefy every pastor I've ever known. If anybody thinks he's deserving, he's the least qualified. But under-shepherds are not to be ho-hum, oh, I don't know if God called me. I think it's borderline absurd, and I think it's, I'll die for it. 
There's a fire in my bones. God said, serve me. 17 years ago, a church that I did a little internship with for a year before we planted Grace Church said, what will you do if you don't get this internship? I said, I'll pastor somewhere. I don't know where. I can't do anything else. And Paul's telling Timothy, don't neglect the spiritual gift in you. If God gives you a sermon, he'll give you a pulpit. It may be a box on a street corner in downtown Memphis. But if he doesn't give you a pulpit, he's not the one who gave you the sermon. But he'll put a fire in your bones. But your biggest desire won't be to wow people with your eloquence. The fire in your bones will be Galatians 4.19. I am in labor again with you. The travail of childbirth. It's like birth pains. It's like Bianca Cleves yesterday having precious Elijah. It's the birth pain. Galatians 4.19. I am again in labor with you for one thing. Until Christ is formed in you. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. Don't neglect. In fact, he says in verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. It's a picture of a pastor who's all in. No waffle. No second guess. He's taking pains. He's absorbed. The sacred trust of being a pastor in the Lord's church is something that controls him. It's a joyful burden, but it's a burden. As John Piper said, the mantle of the pastor is soaked. You can picture a little yoke on an ox, picture it. But the wood is soft. It's not hard because it's soaked in the blood of Christ. But it's also hot because Piper said it's singed in the fire of hell soaked in the blood of Jesus, singed by the heat of hell. He knows. He knows. He's taken pains with these things. He's absorbed in these things because he knows. Your souls are immortal. He knows. Even if they don't know, he knows. If you're four years old, you will never die. If you're 94 years old, he knows you will live forever. The only question is where? He's absorbed in these things. One author said the mind is, of the pastor is to be as immersed in the pursuit of this calling and work as his body is immersed in the air that he breathes. And his progress should be evident to everybody. Verse 15. All the Christians get all of Christ upon conversion. I know we pray this way a lot. Lord, give me more of you. That's a great prayer. Keep praying it. I'm not even trying to critique it. Just pray it. God can fix it. But you don't get any more of him. You get all of Jesus when you're saved. He doesn't 
parcel himself out to you. He gives you all of himself. You want to know what happens? He gets more of you. So that your progress will be evident to all. Let it be evident over time. Please don't grade me on yesterday. But if there's not any progress in a decade, help me. Let your progress be evident to everybody. Be being saved is Paul's favorite way to talk about his own salvation. I am being saved. Not denying that conversion has happened. He's talking about sanctification, progress. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. That's progress. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. Who's working? Yes, Paul and God. But God is energizing all of Paul's work. Progress. Pay close attention, verse 16, where we close, to yourself and to your teaching persevere in these things. Again, those are commands. Pay attention. Persevere. Paul commands Timothy, look closely at yourself. Don't give yourself a pass. Don't make any excuses. Are you perfectly sanctified? No. Will you ever be on this side of eternity? No. Are you grieved by the sin in your life? Yes. Congratulations, that's actually evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. Be really, really worried when you stop being convicted about your sin. But as you pay close attention, you don't check yourself off a list and say, okay, I got that. Mission accomplished. But you're bringing your whole life, John 3, into the light. You don't hate the light, you love the light. You say, God, you hold the little vessel of your clay life up to the light and it shines through all over the place. There's cracks everywhere. It's brittle and damaged and broken. But as a result, you don't hate the light. John 3 says if you hate the light, you're lost. You love the light. Even though it shines through all the broken parts of your life, you want Romans 9 to happen. Malleable clay in the hand of the potter. Here, break the whole thing, remake it. Whatever you got to do to fix this life, to look more like Jesus, please do more of that. Close attention to yourself. No passes, no excuses. If the church at Ephesus loses their first love, you keep paying close attention to yourself. If all these people turn their back on Jesus and run away, if you're seven years old, listen to me. Keep following Jesus. If mom and dad, and some in our church have been in this situation, turn away from Jesus, you keep following Jesus. And find you a church that will follow him with you. No passes. Anything in life out of sync with the lordship of Jesus? Repent. Hold yourself to a high standard. Keep short accounts with God. When you sin, confess it quickly. Seek fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Live in communion with Jesus. Get to know an actual person who came to this earth who one day soon you will see. You don't ever know when the next ministry opportunity is around the corner. 
You live in sin, you miss it. You don't know when the next church member is going to call and ask for counsel about some kind of perplexing challenge, need guidance for a major decision. The enemy would love to make you drown in your sin or distracted from Jesus so you'll be ineffective in the Lord's work. He knows he can't drag you to hell. He can't make you lose your salvation. He can't damn you. So he's going to do everything he can to make you unuseful in the Lord's service because he doesn't want any of them to go with you. Pay careful attention to yourself and to your teaching. Make sure your doctrine accords with Christ and his lordship. It's faithful to the word. It's consistent with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you're coming up with new stuff, don't tell it to the people. Give them the ancient paths. Give them the old truth. Give them the same diet. Don't be innovative. Just old, faithful, biblical gospel. Sound doctrine, verse 6. Simple, pure devotion to Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11. Be absorbed in these things. Keeping a careful watch on himself for Timothy, it couldn't be more crucial. It's because of where we started. For, verse 16, as you do this, Something very specific. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Sign me up. Let's go. Yes. Okay. What does this mean? I began with a question that we're now concluding with. Do you see this promise? Can you believe that this guarantee is for you right now? Can you hear God speaking these words over you? You and all who hear you will be ensured salvation, signed, love God. To whom is this spoken? Of course, this promise is given to the man and to his hearers whose lives are immersed in a local church said a hundred times today, Timothy's the pastor of the church at Ephesus when he gets this letter. This is a church that's drenched in the Bible. They're getting sound doctrine. They're getting chapter one, gospel clear instruction. They're getting chapter two, the one Savior for all men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's what they're getting over and over and over again. That's to whom this letter's written. Sound doctrine is the diet that was shaping the minds and lives of the church because Paul had been their pastor for three years. Now Timothy is their pastor for however long that was. John the apostle, the beloved disciple, would become their pastor from which he would get exiled to Patmos for preaching and teaching Jesus. That's what this church was getting. As you do this, what's the this? Give them Christ. And if they keep hearing and keep saying, that's my Jesus, that, that's the Savior, yeah, tell me about him again. Point me to him again. Tell me about his fullness one more time. Tell me how he didn't save me and leave me, but he's with me. Tell me how he's going to grow me. Tell me how he's going to keep maturing me. Tell me how he's going to change me from what I am to what he wants me to be. And one day I will be that fully. 
That's what they were getting. As you do this, and they keep saying yes, I guarantee you they'll be saved. And so will you. Because there's only one gospel. If you want a biblical assurance that you're on your way to eternal salvation, that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for with His blood and secured with His resurrection, if you want to know that the resurrection from the dead and life everlasting belongs to you, I can guarantee you on the authority of God's Word you can have that assurance. Are you a verse 6 constantly nourished on the words of the faith person? Are you a verse 6 constantly digesting sound doctrine? I'm not talking about abstract biblical topics. I'm talking about Jesus, the sum total of saving knowledge. You see, the solid rock of biblical assurance that Jesus is indeed our Lord and Savior. The solid rock of biblical assurance. Not hope so. Oh man, did I really pray it enough? The solid rock of biblical assurance that Jesus is indeed our Lord and Savior is this. A whole, the Holy Spirit's gift to those whose lives are immersed, immersed in a church whose eyes are dominated by a threefold expression. Riveted to the Savior through the Scriptures with the saints. Do you want assurance of your salvation? Do you want to know that God is guaranteeing you salvation? Rivet your eyes to Jesus through the Scripture with the saints for the rest of your life. That doesn't earn your salvation. That evidences your salvation. That will actually assure you that you are one of those saved people. The local church is an assurance of salvation cohort as we keep our eyes riveted to Jesus through the Scriptures with the saints. So there's two things that I can think of that we should do with a sermon like this. One is believe the Gospel and prove it. How do we prove it? By increasingly being conformed to the image of Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit by absorbing sound doctrine, by putting our life under the waterfall of a gospel-drenched church so that we can hear God repeatedly ensure salvation to us. That's what believing the gospel looks like for a lifetime. And the other one is negative. Or do it your own way. Go get assurance another way. You're going to live forever. I'm not saying that as a gotcha. I'm saying that as a guarantee. You have an immortal soul that will never die. So if you want assurance another way, I don't say it snarky. I say it with a broken heart. Good luck. As far as I can tell, God does not promise salvation to anyone except those whose lives are so dominated by Christ that what they do is live in fellowship with a gospel-drenched people for the rest of their days. That's the audience that got chapter 4. In doing this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. How long do we do this? 
Well, when we get to heaven, we'll ask Timothy how long he did it. And we'll ask Paul how long he did it. John, as best I can tell, about 95 years, who became the pastor after Timothy. So we're going to sing words that you know. I just want to help you to sing them with all your heart. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my